This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Write the book, and I guess what it was was seeing up front um, kind of what one knows without seeing it, one knows in the abstract, but actually seeing up front just how dysfunctional our parliament is. Um, the shock of that drove me to, um, to, to really spend a lot more time thinking about parliamentary reform than I'd uh, ever expected that I, that I would, uh, and also then led to, to the writing of the book. And I guess the starting point really is about, um, about what Westminster is like, and if any of you saw the programme on BBC Two, um, Inside the Commons, uh, there was a documentary showing what the Commons was like, and anyone who saw it, I think, will probably agree that it was pretty much a cross between Hogwarts and a Gilbert and Sullivan comic opera. <laughs> and, uh, and what really struck me was that there are some things at Westminster which are weird and wonderful and ridiculous, but not necessarily damaging. And then there's another category of things which are, uh, you know, pretty weird and extremely damaging. And so those are some of the things that I explore in the book. And I suppose in the, in the first category, the, the, the stuff that is just kind of weird but doesn't matter that much, is the things like, you know, when you arrive, you're, the first thing that you're given is your, your pink ribbon upon which to hang your sword, which is a very thoughtful gesture, but not actually as useful as a working office would have been. Um, and we had to wait some weeks before you get the, the office. And there's the things like, you know, the, the, the fact that you can take a pinch of snuff, courtesy of the taxpayer, on your way into the chamber should you feel that you cannot uh, survive the, uh, the session inside the chamber without uh, the aid of some snuff. Um, there's all of the weirdness of the, of the language, which, which actually is a problem in a sense, I think, because it does um, create more of a barrier between, between the people who uh, we are elected on behalf of and, and MPs. And, you know, some of it's just around the fact that you don't ever talk about your colleagues by their, by their name. You wouldn't say, um, you know, Eric is talking rubbish or Mr. Pickles is talking rubbish, to take a random example. <laughs> you would say... <laughs> you would say that the, um, the Honourable Member for Brentwood and Ongar is talking rubbish. And in fact, you would also then remember that he's in the Cabinet, so then he's the right Honourable Member, and he's now just been given a knighthood, so by the time you've got all of that out, you've probably forgotten what you were going to say in the first place. So all of that is just kind of weird, but, but, but not that damaging. But to be serious, what did really concern me, seeing up front at Westminster, was in particular, I think, the extraordinary... Um, imbalance between the power of the executive and the legislature. In other words, the government has it all sewn up. And I guess we kind of know that, but again, seeing it up front is, is pretty shocking. And to give you a little example of what I mean by that, some of the best potential for scrutiny of draft legislation should be happening in the so-called bill committees. These are ad hoc temporary committees that are set up when a new bill has had its second reading, in other words, the, the discussion on the floor of the House, it then goes to committee where it is scrutinised in theory, line by line. Um, so a committee of perhaps a dozen people will meet for anything between three weeks and three months. They'll meet three or four times a week. And this is really the, the, the one opportunity there is to go through and really, really try and amend and constructively change and, and improve the legislation in front of us. And one of the most controversial bits of legislation in the last parliament was the Health and Social Care Bill, now Act. And as you'll know, that was Andrew Lansley's um, wonderful brainchild, uh, which entrenches yet more marketization and indeed privatization in the NHS. Now, there's a Conservative MP called Sarah Wollaston representing Totnes, 
who was actually one of the um, MPs who was uh, selected in one of the open primaries. You might remember David Cameron at one time thought it would be an excellent idea to have open primaries where anybody living in the area can vote to, to, to select who should uh, be able to stand in the election for a certain party. Um, and that was before he realized that actually it let through far too many independent-minded people and he's quickly put the idea back in the box. But one of the people that did get through on that basis was Sarah Wollaston and she was very well known in Totnes because she was a doctor, a GP. And she feels very strongly that one of the reasons she was elected to Parliament was precisely because of her expertise in, in medicine. So unsurprisingly, she wanted to sit on the bill committee that was going to scrutinize the health and social care bill. Uh, but what she was told in no uncertain terms by the party whips was there was absolutely no way she was going to be allowed to sit on that committee. She knew far too much about it. <laughs> and would she please instead go and sit on the committee for double taxation in Oman? And when she pointed out that she knew you know, very little of that said subject, the response from the whips was essentially marvellous. That just means you vote the way we tell you to um, as the piece of legislation goes through. So that's just a little kind of window, I suppose, into what passes as a, as, a, as a democracy that we're all terribly proud of, but which in effect is not serving the people in the way that it should, I would argue. That that, that is just one example, and there are a myriad examples uh, every day of the week whereby we are not getting the best legislation that we could out of, out of Parliament. And the second example of that, of that weirdness that is actually very dangerous, I think, is around the fact the somewhat shocking fact that uh, for most of the time, most MPs actually have no idea what they're voting on, um, which seems to me a bit of a problem, really. And one of the reasons for that is that, again, it suits the whips very nicely not to, um, not to kind of make it easy for MPs to know what they're voting on. Um, and so when you have an amendment that says something like in paragraph 3, little 2.1, repl <coughs> replace and with or, unless you've done quite a lot of background reading and checked all the documents, then you're not going to know what that actually means. And yes, of course, in an ideal world, all MPs would have checked every single amendment and they would know what everything means. But in reality, MPs are busy people, there are always other things going on, and the vast majority do not have time to go through every single amendment unless it's an area that they're covering very closely. So that means that they are simply, when the bell goes for a vote, looking at their blackberries as they run from their office to get to the chamber, finding out you know, which way they're meant to vote. Um, and so I came up with the um, suggestion, which is actually based on what is mandatory in the European Parliament, of having an explanatory statement that would explain in no more than about 50 words the intent of an amendment. So you could see very quickly what that amendment is designed to do. Because I've seen MPs, I mean, I promise you, the bell goes, you've got eight minutes from, to get from wherever you are on the parliamentary estate to the chamber to vote. And so you're dashing down there. My office, interestingly, is a very long way away from the, um, from the chamber. I'm sure that's entirely <laughs> coincidental. But as I jog along, you know, through the car park, down the escalator, along the corridor and up the other end, you know, the whole of the conversation is, what are we voting on? Does anyone know what we're voting on? And then when you actually try and explain what we're voting on, I've actually had the experience of, of talking to an MP who's literally physically being pushed over the uh, entry into the I lobby or the no lobby. And the MP is still trying to remonstrate with their whip saying, I'm not sure I want to vote this way. But it's, it's too late. They've been pushed over the threshold and they are then in the voting lobby. And if you've seen it on, on, uh, on TV, you'll know you've got the, the chamber, then either side of the chamber, you've got the yes lobby, the I lobby and the, and the no lobby. And essentially you enter at one end, you walk through and you get uh, crossed off by hand at the other end to show you voted one way or the other. And this has led, actually, to people who've accidentally voted the wrong way to hide in the toilets in the lobbies so they don't have to get counted out 
have, as having voted. So they, they hide in the toilets until the vote is over. This is the state of our wonderful democracy. I hope you feel uh, reassured by that. Um, but my suggestion that we should have explanatory statements to simply make it easier both for MPs and indeed anyone who might be uh, watching Parliament TV to try and follow what's going on. And what was interesting about the suggestion was that it was fought so hard by the whips who were horrified at the idea that MPs might know more about what they're voting on. And so we had this incredibly um, uh, you know, uh, vibrant and, and full and frank debate about, about it. Uh, I managed to get a debate on, on the floor of the House about whether or not these explanatory statements should, um, should happen. And then come the vote, uh, there were 50 people in favour and 300 against, presumably because they hadn't read the uh, information about what the vote was about. So once again, they were being pushed through the I lobby or the no lobby. So that just gives you an indication that it's quite hard work trying to change the way Parliament operates. And it, and it does matter. I mean, it really does matter. One of the other areas that I feel strongly about is around trying to change it so that we have electronic voting instead of having to spend 20 minutes for each vote. That's what it takes for each vote. By the time the bell goes, you've got eight minutes to get there. You then file through your lobbies, and then it's all counted manually. And basically, that means that uh, that in an hour you can just do three votes or whatever because <coughs> it's taking you 20 minutes each. Um, whereas in the European Parliament, you know, a, a vote takes just a matter of seconds because you're voting electronically. Um, and it matters because it means that the Speaker cannot put every single amendment to the vote because there simply isn't time. We would be sitting there till Christmas if every single amendment had its 20-minute uh, uh, timescale. So that means the Speaker can decide which amendments to put to the vote. He doesn't have to explain why he's choosing one or, or the other. Um, there's no accountability to that. And so, again, I was terribly excited when I first got there. My first amendment was about the Strategic Defence Review. The Strategic Defence Review, for reasons best known to the government, was not going to include Trident because that was off-limits, which seemed a very odd thing to do to me, given that Trident is the biggest um, single price tag on the, on the defence agenda. Uh, so I had an amendment in there suggesting that the Defence Review should include Trident nuclear weapons. Um, we were just about to get to my amendment, terribly excited, and suddenly the Speaker bounces over it and goes to the next one. So I'm sitting there trying to catch his eye, trying to kind of say, I think you've missed out my amendment. And then I'm taken aside and told, no, he's just decided your amendment is not one to be put to the vote. And that, again, is, I think, not a good case for our democracy. That should not be that one person, the Speaker, can just randomly decide which amendments to put to the vote. And what's made all of this even more frustrating is that there have been a couple of, of attempts to, to try to improve the way Westminster operates. There have been a couple of opportunities when we really could have made things better. And I guess the depressing thing is that those attempts um, were, were thwarted. And I just want to very quickly tell you what those were before we, we move on to discussion. And, and one of them was the Lobbying and Transparency Bill. Now, the Lobbying and Transparency Bill was an opportunity to try to have greater scrutiny over the level of corporate lobbying that goes on in Parliament. In other words, there would have been a way in which there would have been a register, so you would have had some <coughs> sense of who was lobbying whom and for what purpose. That seemed to be a very positive thing. When David Cameron first became Prime Minister, indeed just before he became Prime Minister, he said that the lobbying scandal, this idea of you know, corporate lobbyists giving brown envelopes full of cash to different uh, uh, MPs and Lords, was the next greatest scandal to uh, erupt. And then, of course, he conveniently forgot about it uh, when he was uh, elected uh, as Prime Minister. Um, but basically, what the lobbying and transparency bill, what, what it could have done, would have been to set up that, that 
corporate register, so we'd have had greater transparency. What it in fact ended up doing was being a real chilling effect on NGOs, on those seditious organizations like Oxfam and Friends of the Earth. Um, it was really stopping them from having as much um, latitude around lobbying, particularly around uh, uh, election time or campaigning. This wasn't to say that they shouldn't um, support one candidate or another. The Charity Law Commission already makes it very clear that charities can't uh, you know, be party political, but it, it went much further than that and made it much harder for those organizations to do any kind of campaigning and, and lobbying. Uh, and it more or less let the corporate lobbyists off scot-free. It only applies to the very small minority of corporate lobbyists who actually work for corporate lobbying companies, as opposed to those that work for Shell or BP or others, uh, which is the normal way of doing it. In a sense, you've got your big company and then you'll have your own uh, lobbyists as part of your, of your workforce. Those lobbyists aren't covered by this thing at all. And to see the way in which that, that happened in a way, that opportunity when we could have had a bit more transparency around corporate lobbying uh, was, was deeply frustrating. And the other one, the other issue was about the right of recall. Again, there was an opportunity to say that, uh, particularly after the expenses scandal, to try to build up some of the trust that had been so hugely uh, damagingly lost as a result of the uh, expenses scandal. One of the proposals was that constituents should have the right to recall their MP in certain circumstances. There were all kinds of um, measures built in to mean that that wasn't to be allowed to be used frivolously. You needed a certain percentage of people in your constituency to recall your MP uh, under certain circumstances. But, but basically that was a, a positive thing. But again, what happened as the piece of legislation uh, was properly introduced into the House and went through uh, the different stages was that instead it was used to mean that other MPs were acting as judge and jury over their, over their colleagues. So it wasn't you constituents who were able to make the decision over whether or not an MP was to be recalled. It had to go through a filter of other MPs who would decide whether or not their colleagues should be recalled. And unfortunately, you can imagine that um, that, I think, would undermine some of the independence of that mechanism as a, as a way of properly scrutinizing um, what happens um, in Parliament and, and what happens to our, our MPs. So, to sum up, there is much uh, to be done, much um, to be changed in Parliament. Um, I was just going to say just a few last words about, about really um, the fact that it's not only the parliamentary system, um, or rather not, the, not, not only the parliamentary institution that needs reform, but the political system as well. And I was going to end just by reflecting on the last election, the general election just gone. And to me, the way in which that seems to be an object lesson in the need for a fairer voting system. Uh, of course, I've got a vested interest in that when it comes to the Greens. 1.2 million people voted Green uh, in the general election. We get just one MP uh, elected. If you added together the Lib Dems, the Greens and UKIP, not that I have a great deal of, of <laughs> support for UKIP, but nonetheless, they have a democratic right to their, uh, to their representation. But those three parties between us got 25% of the vote and just 1.5% of the seats. Now, I absolutely don't begrudge the SNP their seats, but I think we could reflect on the fact that they got 95% of the seats on around 50% of the votes. So I think not only is that unfair, but it's also disempowering, because it means that an awful lot of people are living in constituencies where you know, they may draw the conclusion that you know, whatever they do, they're not going to be able to change the person that is the sitting MP because they basically have safe seats. And I think that's incredibly bad for our democracy. It's incredibly bad for our political engagement. 
Um, I would love to see voting brought down to age 16. I would love to see uh, a fairer voting system. I think that would be incredibly good for our democracy. I'd love to see more women in parliament. I've got some ideas we could talk about around that, more people from um, ethnic backgrounds, more people with disabilities. I just think we need to open up this parliament, which does a very good job as a museum, but unfortunately a far less good job, I would argue, as a democratic institution that should be one that we look up to with, with some degree of, of pride, but which I think right now is, is an embarrassment. Just picking up on one of your concluding points there, you mentioned electoral reform. There is a well-known and cogent persuasive argument for some sort of electoral reform. But how do, we, how do we get there from a logical argument to practical political reality? Well, I, I was hoping that the Labour Party itself might, might look at the last election results and recognise that it's probably in its own interest to go for, for fairer voting. I mean, it certainly would be in, in Scotland and, and arguably in other parts of the country as well. So obviously part of the, the, the problem has to be or the challenge has to be to get Labour on, on this agenda as well. I think they're frightened it will look like a loser's argument. You know, I urging electoral reform after a, a, an election defeat. It would have been much nicer if they'd done it before they were defeated, obviously. <laughs> but I think that I, I think that they could recognise, you know, with what's happening with with Jeremy Corbyn's campaign, if nothing else, that there is a bit of a political revolution going on there. We've had the SNP success in Scotland. We've had this incredible appetite for change, which I think Jeremy Corbyn's campaign is is demonstrating. I think things are changing very fast in terms of the way in which people cast their vote, the way in which they think about politics, and I think it could actually reflect the fact not of weakness but the fact that the Labour Party is more in tune with the fact that people want to be able to feel their vote counts you know we're nearly a hundred years since women got the vote okay that's that's great women have the vote but let's let's use that anniversary if you like to say yes it's great to have a vote but let's all have a vote that actually means something that counts and in so many parts of the country people's vote doesn't count in the same way because of the electoral system that we have first past the post. So I think you could make a case with Labour to say that actually this is about modernising our political system. You could roll it into an overall constitutional reform package because, by God, we need to reform the Lords as well. They could take that on too. I think it could be part of a package if that makes it easier in terms of, of, of not looking as if it's something they've had to resort to as a, as a point of weakness. Um, I think it's something that I would love to see Jeremy Corbyn champion more in the leaders' debates. I would love to see um, the whole kind of political reform taking a far bigger role in those debates right now because I think it's, a, it's a, an issue that there is an appetite for out there. People want to see some change. Um, and I think that there's an, an opportunity to do that. You say, how are we going to do it? Another way we could do it, a more radical way, but it would be interesting. It would presuppose uh, a greater degree of, of, of collaboration between political parties than we have at the moment. But you could imagine a situation whereby in each constituency you have a, at the next election, you have a candidate that is standing simply on the ticket of parliamentary reform or indeed constitutional reform if we want to make it wider. And so you would, you would have, you know, a number of parties all supporting one candidate and they would be standing on that ticket on the understanding that if the next government then is formed with a majority in favour of that, then the next election comes very, very quickly afterwards and everyone goes back to supporting their own parties. But it would be just a way of unlocking what is such a stultifying 
voting system that locks out so many different views and so many different people come to that too. So I think there are, if there was the political will to do it, we're not short of mechanisms to sure. find to make it happen. What about the House of Lords? Um, un you mentioned the SNP, but unlike the SNP, the, the Greens don't abstain. You have, you have one peer, uh, Jenny Jones, uh, who was appointed a few years ago. What's your... What's your prescription there? And again, is there a gap between the, the logic of the argument, if you like, and how realistic it is to, it, it's likely to happen? Well, again, this has been wonderfully in the news over the last yes. few days with uh, Cameron's latest um, uh, elevation, so-called, uh, of um, a, a number of his cronies to, to the House of Lords. And um, it was interesting, too, Polly Toynbee was talking yesterday and had a wonderful article in the, in the Guardian looking at the fact that the 92, the remaining 92 hereditary peers are themselves allowed to vote yeah. to have a replacement <laughs> if one of the... Yeah. So one of them kind of, you know, it's a very small, ma it's a very small mandate. But it's however. a wonderfully small mandate. So you've got 92 hereditary peers who are allowed to choose. If one of them dies or goes off somewhere, they can choose um, uh, one replacement. But you can only choose from your own party. So if it was a Tory peer who died, that takes you down to just 48 peers right. who are able to, amongst themselves, decide which of the hereditary peers that were outside Parliament, they could, you know, who were part of the uh, Lords, that they can then vote for to come back into the Lords. It is bonkers. It is madness. And I think so, you know, you're asking, you know, where do we get the, the political will to change that? I think just the more that people know about it and feel that there might just be some momentum for change, that, 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 that we, we know that this system doesn't work, that it is a, a travesty of, of democracy. Um, I would love to see uh, an elected second chamber. I think it would be interesting, personally, this isn't party policy, but I think it would be interesting to see maybe whether or not you could combine that with some kind of electoral colleges, because I like the idea of there being someone representing teachers or construction workers or the health service or whoever. I like the idea of there being a broad range of, of different interests in the Lords and different expertises in the, in, the, in the Lords. But I think that for as long as it is about you know, that the Prime Minister appointing their chums, then it just, again, makes our electoral system at, at best a, 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 a laughingstock. Would you accept more peers if offered? And presumably that, that is a prospect. You have only one at the moment. Well, I would, because we would be arguing within that for reform. I mean, it's, like, it's a little bit like the argument around the EU. The, the, the Greens absolutely want to see parliamentary reform, um, uh, at the EU level, we think the EU is, is too remote, it's too undemocratic, it's too untransparent, but in a sense you need to be there to have some of those voices to change that. So on the proviso that obviously if they're being uh, appointed from the Greens, they are there with that agenda to try and dissolve it, to try to make it much smaller, to make it elected. I think we need as many of those voices in as many different places as we can get them. Okay, you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn, obviously a big news story, ongoing news story at the moment. Uh, you. You recently issued an open letter to Corbyn talking about the prospect of a, a progressive alliance, a progressive coalition, if, if you like. Do you detect enthusiasm from him on that point, or do you think he's just waiting to actually be elected leader if he is elected leader? I mean, I know Jeremy pretty well. We've worked together for many years, and I think he would be interested in uh, working more closely with a range of different uh, parties. Um, as I say, he hasn't come out yet as strongly in favour of electoral reform as I should have liked. He is talking about having a constitutional conference if he were um, elected leader, which would look at all of these issues, so he hasn't put his colours to the mast. Um, but I think that he would be uh, open to that. And I think as well that there's a really um, strong argument to be made, really, that, that no one single 
political party, has a monopoly on wisdom. And over and over again, you hear not just the, the, the leadership candidates, but actually the, the deputy leaders, people like Stella Creasy too, talking about the need for Labour to be not a machine, but a movement. Well, I agree with that, but if it's to be a movement, it can't be an exclusive movement just of people who are signed up Labour Party members. Surely it would be much more um, effective, as well as being much more um, open and pluralistic, to recognise that there are all kinds of different views on the progressive left. And if we work together, we could actually do a better job for the country, as well as, 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 as that being an important principle in terms of openness and democracy as well. Do you think, Jeremy Corbyn, it looks likely he's going to win the Labour leadership. Do you think it's possible for him to hold on to the leadership and also win the next election in 2020? Because surely that's a crucial test in all of this. It is a, a crucial test. Um, and who knows how quickly things are changing as to whether or not he could win an election. I mean, people certainly didn't expect him to have the, the kind of response he's getting around the country now. So I think things are changing very fast. It is very hard to predict how things will change. But, you know, even if he decided just to, to stand for, for a couple of years and change the culture of the Labour Party, that would be an incredibly helpful thing to do, I think. Because I think what are people are responding to when they respond to Jeremy Corbyn is not necessarily that they agree with all of his policies. They just respect the fact that someone is speaking from the heart, that someone is actually coming back to authentic politics again, that they're not just simply looking at their blackberries to see what the latest focus group is saying, but they are saying what they believe, whether it's popular or not. And I think that our politics has gone so far from that at the moment, that when you do hear it, even if you're hearing it from someone who's policies you don't necessarily agree with, there is something so refreshing and something so encouraging about the idea that we might just be able to bring a little bit more honesty back into politics. And I think people will respond to that. Now, on a similar theme, um, a recurring motif in your book, I think, is, is your view of yourself and others of being an outsider uh, in politics. But if I could just gently challenge it, I mean, you, you talk about the educational background of MPs. You, you yourself went to, I think I'm right in saying, an independent girls' school, Exeter University. You were a two-term member of the, the European Parliament. How much of an outsider does that actually make you, uh, given it's quite a similar CV to a lot of other leading politicians? I think that's a perfectly um, reasonable question. And I think what I'm saying, uh, well, two things. First of all, when I'm criticizing others in Parliament, and I do make this point really clearly, yeah. uh, I am not saying there should be no one there, you know, with, 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 a, with a kind of traditional political CV, if you like. What I'm saying is that we need a hell of a lot of other voices there as well. And so I'm not sitting picking off people who've had a certain education or a certain background and saying they shouldn't be there, but they shouldn't be the overall, you know, vast majority that they make up um, in Parliament at the moment. And in terms of my own experience, you're right, my, my background doesn't, doesn't make me an outsider, but I think being in the Green Party uh, <laughs> certainly does, in the sense that the kind of politics that I'm espousing is a very, very different kind of politics. Okay. The kind of political system that we want to see is radically different from the one that we've got here now. You know, giving power far more back to, to, to ordinary people, get, getting rid of this idea of, 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 of politics being done essentially by white men in grey suits behind closed doors. You know, being a woman in Parliament, actually, uh, is, is pretty much still a minority uh, uh, occupation, although it has got better after the last election. So I think what I'm saying is not to criticise any individuals uh, and not setting myself up to be specially different, but just saying that if Parliament is to regain the trust of people, then it needs to look an awful lot more like 
the people it's there to represent. And right now, it certainly doesn't. Now, you mentioned being a, a woman in politics, and indeed there's, there's a chapter on that issue in the book. Of course, Parliament is still male-dominated, as you uh, rightly point out. Uh, so is the, the parliamentary press gallery. I worked there for a year, I, I remember it well. Very few female journalists. It sort of ebbs and flows, you know, there was that moment after the, the Blair landslide in 97 where there was, there was a, a big increase in numbers. Where, how do you see that panning out? And what about the Scottish dimension? Of course, we have the first female First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, up here. Well, I think that um, Nicola Sturgeon's doing a, a, a brilliant job and that she's been a great, um, I hate the word role model, but um, she has, you know, shown that, that uh, you can have some fantastic women uh, in politics who aren't Maggie Thatcher, and that's a very good thing to, <laughs> to, uh, to demonstrate, I think. Um, we are making such slow and incremental process on the number of women in, in Parliament. I was just looking at the figures. So we had 22% in the 2010 Parliament. It's gone up to 28%. That's progress, but it still means that we're 39th in the world in terms of the percentage of women in Parliament. It means that we're behind uh, democracies like Rwanda, Cuba and Mozambique. Uh, so I think we've got a, a heck of a lot of work to do. I mean, I personally um, would want to support the idea of um, all women shortlists. I uh, also recognise, though it's not just a question of technical fixes, we also need to look at some of the obstacles to uh, more women coming into politics. Uh, that's why um, I've championed also the idea of job sharing. I have to say, Jack Straw nearly had a fit when he was sitting next to me when I suggested it. <laughs> but, you know, every single profession, when you first suggest job sharing, thinks of a million reasons why it can't possibly work. But actually, I think it could, and it wouldn't only be good for women, it would be good for anybody with caring responsibilities, or indeed anyone who wants to keep a foot in the real world and remember what's going on. So I think that that could be a, a, a positive way forward. We need uh, free childcare. That would make a big difference for more women getting involved in politics. We need to change the way we do politics. You know, for most people kind of tuning in to... Prime Minister's questions and just seeing the testosterone fueled insanity of, of, of Prime Minister's questions, you know, it's a very sensible thing to think, actually, I don't want to have anything to do with that whatsoever. So let's change the way we do politics. Let's open it up. Let's get more people from all kinds of different backgrounds in there. But certainly we need to do more uh, when it comes to um, getting more women in there. Uh, I was just going to say a few words about um, Emily Wilding Davison, who is, uh, she was the woman who, the suffragette who uh, famously died when she ran out in front of the King's Horse at the Epsom Derby in 1913. And one of the routes to the parliamentary chamber that, that I take, actually it's the same route every day because my sense of direction is dreadful, so I, I like to orientate myself by going past the um, display that they have in Parliament of the scarf that she was wearing, the suffragette scarf that she was wearing when she, um, when she died. And just remembering, really, I guess, the, the enormous sacrifices that the suffragettes made is, is something that, that kind of drives me on and makes me want to see sort of more women in Parliament. I guess that the suffragettes then could never have dreamt that we'd still be 100 years later and, and still only 28% of, of women in, in Parliament. You know, she was jailed nine times for her, um, for her, you know, her, her, her campaigning. She um, was force-fed 49 times. And, you know, if being force-fed perhaps doesn't sound such an awful thing. You know, you might have visions of someone sort of pushing donuts in your mouth, and that doesn't sound so bad. But if you really know what force-feeding is about, it's about the most abusive, uh, violent, awful way in which these women were, were you know, forced to, to, to uh, not go on hunger strike when they were in prison. So what they've been through, it seems to me, is just... Um, the most extraordinary sacrifice, and I think that for, you know, it's important to remember that. Um, 
and, and, and their single-mindedness. And there was a wonderful letter, too, that I quote in the book from a suffragette called Bertha Brewster, who wrote to The Telegraph in 1913, and, and her letter, I think, just wonderfully sums up the refusal to compromise. She says in a letter to The Telegraph in 1913, Sir, everyone seems to agree upon the necessity of putting a stop to suffragist outrages, but no one seems certain how to do so. There can be two and only two ways that this can be done. One, kill every woman in the UK. Two, give women the vote. Yours truly, Bertha Brewster. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final question from me before you, you do a short reading and we move to questions. We haven't spoken about the environment, which I suppose reflects in a way that the Green Party is certainly not a, a single issue party. It has a much broader agenda. But where do you think environmental politics are at in, the, in global terms and also more specifically now we have a majority conservative government with well-known views on, on renewables? Has that moment, again I'm thinking of, of the late 90s, early part of the century when the environment very much dominated, has that perhaps passed? I don't think it's passed in terms of, of, of the public. I think what has passed for the moment, which is incredibly worrying, is the degree of consensus there was in Parliament um, at the time when the um, Climate Change Act was brought into being. Now, that was a, 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 an act that, to its credit, the Labour Party brought in towards the end of its uh, term. And it's an incredibly important piece of legislation. It doesn't go far enough, of course, I would say that, but nonetheless, it's an architecture upon which you can put some more ambitious targets, which would be a way of ensuring that we perhaps have a better chance of avoiding the worst of climate change. And it's just interesting to reflect back in the Parliament then, I think there were only about five MPs who voted against the Climate Change Act. If you look at the Conservative MPs in the 2010 uh, um, uh, intake, and I haven't seen a full analysis of the 2015 intake, but I don't think it's much different. There are well over 100 people in, in, in the Conservative ranks who would say that they are climate sceptic now. And that, I think, is just so deeply worrying, particularly if anybody who's seen the Independent newspaper this morning, big headline basically saying 2015 is the hottest, looks already likely to be the hottest um, uh, year on record, that the, last, um, the, the three hottest years on record have all been in the last five years, um, you know, the, the, the science of climate change is moving on apace and absolutely demonstrating the seriousness of climate change at the same time as we have lost that political um, consensus around it. It's become much more a, a party political football. I don't think that most people um, uh, would say the same. I think people still care massively about the environment. I think a mistake sometimes is putting environmental policies in a box called the environment rather than putting it in a box that is, or in fact not putting it in a box, but actually putting it across the political spectrum. I mean, fuel poverty is, is something that I'm passionately concerned about. In Brighton, many, many people are in horribly insulated homes, dying of fuel poverty uh, because they can't afford to heat their homes. That is an environmental issue. Air pollution and people having asthma and more and more people having those problems, those are environmental issues. So I think the more we can recognize the links with health with, um, uh, you know, with broader issues around poverty, uh, the, the more resonant it is with people. Uh, but it is more urgent than ever. And just to pick up on your point about under this government, I mean, again, as I say, we've just had the independent newspaper reminding us this is likely to be the hottest year ever on record. At the same time, just a few days ago, we had the Conservative government here in this country tearing up any support for, uh, more or less any support for solar uh, feed-in tariffs. Uh, that comes on top of having um, ripped up the plans around dealing with energy efficiency and energy conservation. That comes on top of yet more subsidies to fracking. So we are going in exactly the wrong direction at the time when it matters most. Okay. Sorry. No, no. 
Okay, so we'll have uh, a short reading and then we'll move to questions. Okay. So this is just a very short reading from uh, the very end of the book. Um, and it's basically um, talking about how you get um, a private member's bill. Um, and private member's bills are the opportunity that backbench MPs have, in theory at least, of being able to introduce their own legislation. And there's a private member's bill ballot, so you, um, every MP enters the ballot to see if they're going to be one of the lucky few who are picked out to have parliamentary time to, um, to be able to put a, a, a private member's bill. Uh, but if you don't get it that way, there are other weird ways you can get it. You can stay the night, for several nights actually, outside a particular office door to be the first person over the threshold at a certain time. Um, and I did spend a, 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 an interesting night, um, which is the subject <laughs> of another book another time, uh, to get my private member's bill. And this is me uh, lining up behind the speaker's chair to try to get it onto the, um, onto the parliamentary timetable. I stood in line behind the speaker's chair and waited while we went through the Chope and Bone show. That is, the tabling of bills proposed by Mr. Christopher Chope, the Honourable Member for Christchurch, and supported by Mr. Peter Bone, the Honourable Member for Wellingborough, both of whom are Conservative. Soon the list is underway. The Illegal Immigrants Criminal Sanctions Bill, the Benefit Entitlement Restriction Bill, the Convicted Persons Voting Bill, the Asylum Time Limit Bill, this litany of obsessions and mean-spiritedness would be almost comical if it weren't for the fact that Chope and Bone have an audience here and in the country. The Working Time Directive, Limitation Bill, the Employment Rights Bill, and just to be clear, that's the rights of employers, not employees, the Bat Habitats Regulation Bill, what have the bats done to Messrs Chope and Bone, <laughs> the Overseas Voters Bill, which would help those living overseas to vote, fine in itself, but one feels it may have occurred to C and B that many of them will vote Conservative, and some even for their own peculiar brand of Conservatism. And then to change the mood a little, we have some bills tabled by Bone and supported by Chope. The British Bill of Rights and Withdrawal from the European Convention on Human Rights Bill, the Department of Energy and Climate Change Abolition Bill, Presumably, as climate change sceptics, they object to the name. The Foreign National Offenders Exclusion from the United Kingdom Bill. And then there's one I rather like, the Hospital Car Parking Charges Abolition Bill. Because although I'm no great fan of cars, we shouldn't fund the NHS by hitting patients and visitors with these charges. But after this startling lurch into making people's lives better, they get back on track with the BBC Privatisation Bill. <laughs> By the end of all this, I feel quite proud of my own modest proposals. The Railways Bill, for example, would mean bringing rail franchises back into public hands as they come up for renewal, a way to end the chaos and waste of rail privatisation without the need to pay anyone any compensation. There's also a bill to make it mandatory to teach personal, social, health and economic education in schools. Incredible that the government hasn't already done this, given how crucial it is for helping young people make sense of the world they are to live in. Another on research into reducing the cost and improving the quality of housing in the private rented sector and encouraging more council house building as well. And every one of these has wide public support, addresses a real need and perhaps most critically is not trying to stir up envy or hatred amongst other groups. As with austerity, there's something rather distasteful about two men who've done well out of life being so fixated on such a dreary list of obsessions. There's also a hint of paranoia in their vision of a Britain ground down into the dirt by health and safety inspectors and European Commission bureaucrats, and in their determination to pursue measures that would cause misery to some of the most vulnerable people in Britain. What they offer is a bitter, negative view of ourselves and of our future, and what I've tried to represent in Parliament in standing up for green politics is the opposite, 
one that recognizes the difficulties ahead, but is rooted in a faith in our fellow citizens to make the right decisions. Somewhere in his autobiography, the Labour politician Dennis Healy talks about how, whenever he felt fed up with his life in politics or uncertain about what he could achieve, he would wander into the chamber to look at the massed ranks of Tory MPs, and this sight of the alternative would rekindle his commitment to the fight. <laughs> My own feelings are not quite that tribal, but I sympathize with the sentiment. For me, it's more about those individuals who come into politics for their own advantage or to pursue causes that benefit the rich and privileged. But although Parliament remains essentially unreformed and still in the hands of a narrow and self-interested elite, there is nonetheless a sense that change is coming. More MPs are prepared to work together across political boundaries. The power of the whips has weakened a little. And if we've achieved this in a Parliament overshadowed by recession, austerity, and the aftermath of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I'm optimistic about how much further we could go in the new Parliament that will be elected in 2015. <laughs> okay, time for questions. Uh, you were quick off the mark, so this, this gentleman at the front. Uh, Caroline, you have brought a breath of fresh air into Parliament, and you are also a very beautiful young lady. <laughs> Congratulations. No. Congratulations. But uh, what, what I would like to ask you is... Do you think, because Parliament is falling down as a building, its fabric is disintegrating, that if it was moved to Birmingham, this might catapult change in the way it operates? Thank you for your slightly controversial uh, opening <laughs> comments. Um, I do think, to, to be serious about the issue that the Parliament is um, literally crumbling, um, and there are talk of, or there is talk of, of huge amounts of money um, that will be needed to uh, rebuild it. I think we should keep it as a museum and absolutely, as you say, move Parliament, maybe even go further north than Birmingham. Hey, let's go even to Liverpool or Manchester or even further. Um, I think we need to get Parliament out of London. And while we're at it, I think we should absolutely change the architecture of it as well, because I don't think we should underestimate the, um, the impact it has to have your, you know, the, 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 the serried ranks of, of, of opposition and government lined up against each other, you know, one sword lengths apart or whatever. You know, I think that some kind of hemicycle, like in the Scottish Parliament or in the European Parliament or in many others, would actually have an impact on the way in which people do politics, um, as well as, as, as getting us out of, uh, of London, getting us out of a building that is very beautiful, but is absolutely dysfunctional when it comes to a working parliament. The Scottish, Scottish parliament can still be quite tribal if you drop <laughs> in on a first Yeah, but there's still, there's still a chance. There's still a better chance, <laughs> um, I reckon. Lady, three rows back there, if you wait for the microphone. Hi, Caroline. I'm um, a massive fan of your book, um, and I'm really, really glad to, to see you here today. I just wanted to say Thank that. You. Um, you were talking about Jeremy Corbyn and the, the need for sort of refreshment in terms of honesty in politics. Um, and I know it's a little bit sort of off the tangent, but I just wonder what your thoughts were in America at the moment with Bernie Sanders, the movement over there, uh, unprecedented amount of people coming to his rallies and things, maybe because of the site for the same reason, and what, what your thoughts are about a link between the two, if, if you see it that way? Well, I think you're right. I mean, Bernie Sanders is, is absolutely giving Hillary Clinton a, a run for her money uh, and is getting huge numbers of people to his rallies and, is get, again, is, is somebody who is, is someone who speaks 
as he finds, um, who has a reputation for, um, yeah, for, for, for honest speaking. And I just think it's, it's chiming at a time when people are so fed up with politicians who just seem constantly on message. Um, so I think, you know, to, to that extent, there is perhaps a bit of a, a parallel. There's also a parallel, of course, in the, the way in which the voting system in the States is so inimical to, to smaller parties, to any new entrants at all. Um, and, you know, I would love to see the Greens doing well there, but it's going to be a, a, a massive struggle. So somehow we need to reclaim our politics, I think, away from big business, away from big money, um, away from voting systems that uh, shore up that kind of, of privilege. And to that extent, I think there perhaps is some kind of, 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 of parallels that could be drawn between what's happening in the UK and what's happening in the US. And I, I suppose, sorry to interrupt, Donald Trump could argue he's an authentic voice of a, of a different sort. He is, and you know what? I hate what Donald Trump stands for, but I think, again, I would have more respect for someone who is speaking the truth as they see it than I would for someone who's an identikit politician who will just go with the wind whatever their words yeah. say on their BlackBerry in front of them. I hate his politics, let me be in no doubt about that. But I think that, you know, I would far rather a parliament of independent thinkers than people who are literally just following the, the, the wind in order to get elected for the sake of, of election and no, nothing else. Uh, gentlemen, actually further back, um, if you keep your hand up. How would you justify lowering the voting age to 16? They can't drive legally or drink legally. They may not have finished their school education, never mind university. They have little life experience, perhaps. Um, are you hoping that it would increase the votes for the Greens if you had 16 and 17-year-olds? In fact, why not reduce it to 15 or 14? I mean, that is always the... the argument you know if you're going to say 16 then where do you draw the line why not as you say say 15 or 14 i think there is a general recognition that in many parts of our lives 16 marks a moment where young people are able to do uh, a number of things that they can't at 15 or 14. i take the point we can argue whether it should be 17 or 15 but basically what i think is that we need to really capitalize on the fact that an awful lot of young people do care passionately about their futures. At the moment, we've got a political system that is giving a voice and a, and a, and a, and a, and a privilege to older people who uh, are not listening to young people's concerns by and large. And I think that when we've had, certainly, governments in Westminster who have been taking away things like educational maintenance allowance, who've been taking away uh, the right to, to, to go to university with a, with a grant and are now saddling students with huge amounts of debt. Uh, when you have um, you know, a, a, a political system that as well seems to be taking away from young people any hope of being able to own a home in the, in the, in, in the foreseeable future, I think it's absolutely uh, their right to be able to have a voice. And I think it would engage more people in a political process. The 16-year-olds that I've come across in many of my uh, talks and travels across the country and across Brighton are by and large up for this. One of the things that some people say is that, yes, um, perhaps people feel that they don't yet know enough about the political system to be able to cast an informed vote. My answer to that is, well, let's have more political education. Frankly, you could look at quite a lot of older people and say, well, do they know enough about <laughs> the political system? You know, we don't yet have a... Do you do you think the, the still relatively recent Scottish experience strengthens the argument? I think that I was absolutely about to come to that, that I think that the involvement of young people in the Scottish referendum uh, debates and vote has absolutely demonstrated that there is an appetite for people to want to get involved in politics, that, that, that it is young people's future that is at stake. And I think when there are such big questions, 
not least we haven't even got onto the, to, to the climate and the environment as well, then I think it's absolutely right that they have their voice. And I think the Scottish referendum showed that they, that they valued that, that they used it, they went out to vote. Uh, and I think it's a way of, of strengthening our, our electoral system and our democratic system rather than weakening it. Okay, there's a gentleman just there in a Czech shirt. Um, I think it's a Czech shirt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks, Caroline. Uh, although I'm a resident of Edinburgh, uh, I, was, I did elect you. I was uh, voted for you when you were an MEP when I lived down south. Okay. Um, of course, 16-year-olds uh, have got the vote in Scottish elections going forward now, not yeah. UK ones. But the question I want to ask you is really about the transatlantic trade and partnership investment, uh, which maybe lots of people in this room know about, but a lot of people uh, who aren't really engaged in politics don't seem to know anything about. What can you do uh, as an individual and a party and as parliamentarians and us as individual uh, people in the community do to stop the worst aspects of TTIP going forward? Thanks, Steve, for the question. In case there are people that um, are in the room that don't know about TTIP, it's the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. It's a uh, trade and investment agreement being uh, negotiated between the EU and the US, pretty much behind closed doors. We're not uh, being able to see the uh, negotiating documents. Uh, but what we do know is that there will be an investor-state dispute mechanism as, as the absolute heart of this trade agreement. That essentially allows corporations to sue democratically elected governments if they decide that the government is pursuing policies that are uh, forming a barrier to trade. And so there are already precedents out there in other trade agreements where they have this uh, investor state dispute settlement mechanism. So for example, in Australia right now, Philip Morris, the cigarette company, is trying to uh, sue the Australian government because the Australian government um, has introduced uh, plain packaging for cigarettes. And as far as Philip Morris is concerned, this is a terrible infringement on their right to uh, sell cigarettes in Australia. So it is a, an insidious piece of um, legislation that would give more and more powers to corporations. It is cunningly called TTIP, so nobody knows what that means. When you're marching through the streets with your banners saying ban TTIP or whatever, no one has a clue what you're on about. So, you know, full marks to them, first of all, for mystification and, uh, and very uh, strange acronyms. What we need to do, obviously, is, is somehow demystify what it's about. And I think raising questions in places like this, uh, being able to speak in, in, in as many public meetings on the streets and so forth, and just trying to talk to people about, do you want more corporate power uh, over our elected democracies? That's perhaps one way of, of, of crystallizing what it's about. So I think it's about the language that we use. It's also about getting different interest groups involved. And I was talking to some um, people in the arts just recently. So um, uh, a number of the NGOs working on, on TTIP had got together a number of actors, musicians, um, others uh, in the arts to use their much greater reach um, to get more people uh, knowing what this is about as well. So I think to use as many different um, uh, constituencies, if you like, of, of, of people to get the message out, recognizing that actually the arts are threatened as well if TTIP goes ahead, because it could mean that uh, state-supported arts are going to be now under much more challenge than they were before. So finding as many ways as m of making what's at the heart of TTIP applicable to the different interest groups, demystifying the blooming acronym uh, and building a, a, a movement between as many different groups as possible has got to be the way forward. And there's a lady there, and then I'll come over to, to you there. 
Hello there. Picking up on your comments about the strange habits of the House of Commons, I was just keen to ask you about how you think those can most effectively be challenged. Firstly, what did you think about the SNP applauding in the chamber? And secondly, is there no merit in taking your sword into the House of Commons? <laughs> <laughs> Well, on the latter point, it has occurred to me um, to, 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 to experiment with that. But uh, the doorkeepers are fairly, uh, yeah, fairly rigorous at checking what you've got. But if, I suppose it could, I've got quite a big handbag, and I guess if I've got a, a folding one, there, there could be scope in that. To, to be serious about your point, I, I, I do think that, that playing with convention is quite a good idea. I, I, I liked what, what the SNP did when they were applauding. Uh, you know, I, I think they have been a breath of fresh air in a very um, stultifying atmosphere. I think that, that you know, when I stood up in my No More Page 3 t-shirt, it was just another way of just trying to say to... Um, sorry, it wasn't that, but it was about... You know, it just seemed extraordinary to me that wearing a t-shirt, a perfectly respectable t-shirt that happened to have a slogan on it, was deemed to be absolutely unparliamentary, whereas holding up the page three with the, with the yeah. <laughs> topless model... And was it was a Scottish Labour, a former Scottish Labour MP, who got quite it upset. Was. It, it was, it was Jim Hood, who was yeah. in, in complete confusion as to what to do about, about this breach of etiquette. So I think we can have some fun with it, we can, we can play about with it. We've also got a speaker right now who is pretty pro-reform, uh, mind, he's reform-minded, so I think we can work with him more. There's a group within um, Parliament called Parliament First that is chaired by Michael Meacher, and it's got about, there's about a dozen of us that meet quite regularly cross-party, um, and they were supporting me on the stuff on explanatory statements, and we've got some other ideas about how we could change the way in which bill committee membership is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is agreed. So there, there is a bit of a, of, a, of a groundswell there. I think as well, while people are still quite fresh with the new, the new intake that came in in 20 2015, that's the time to catch people before they get too used to the place. I remember vividly Margaret Beckett taking me aside when I was complaining about something and she was basically saying, don't worry dear, you'll soon get used to it. <laughs> to which I replied, that is the trouble, you know, you've all got used to this weird way of, of acting. So while there's still a, a lot of um, energy, I think, from the new intake that came in in 2015 who still also want to change things, um, allied to, to the fact that the SNP are there, you know, obviously chomping at the bit and, and wanting to shake things up a bit as well. I think there is some scope for, um, for being mischievous. And, uh, yeah, look out for the sword. I think that's quite a good idea. And it was the gentleman here. This will be the last question, I'm afraid, so make, make it a good one. Oh, pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Um, you made the statement earlier about female-only candidacy lists. Uh, my question is really quite specific. What exactly would you say to the person who was unable to run purely because of their demographic? I would say that I was very sorry for the impact on that person, but that there is a greater good at stake, and that greater good is the diversity of our parliament and the fact that we haven't had, you know, what have we got, 28% of women, that is the highest we've ever had. So I would hope that someone who is standing for parliament wants to do that because they want to improve the way in which our country runs. Well, if you're suggesting to me you don't think we can find 350 women who are good for the job, I would respectfully disagree with you. Okay, I'm afraid we've come to the end of... Uh, <laughs> Just as well. <laughs> it, was, it was both a good question and a good answer. Um, <laughs> I think we've packed a lot into this hour. We've covered a lot of ground. It's a, a fabulous book, and Caroline will be signing uh, copies uh, next door. But it just remains to join me in thanking Caroline Thanks. Lucas.
More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.